0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benjamin Kitchings, you're listening to The History Voyager, a podcast about history. I want you to consider this part of the COVID-19 conversation that I've been having with you, but it isn't expressly about COVID-19. It's more about some peculiarities in the American culture that I've noticed that really have come to light because of COVID-19. The main thing that I've noticed is sort of this resistance or basically essentially like we live in partisan times as is like we like to say. And COVID-19 has situated itself as has just about everything within that partisan uh, divide. More Americans are more willing to have their child marry somebody of a different race than they are to marry somebody of a different party uh increasingly more people are willing to marry somebody of a different race or anything like that than of a different party i saw another statistic that was even more remarkable if you're under a certain age the age when i saw it was 35 a few years ago you're more likely to have mixed Smartphone platforms in a marriage, than you are different party affiliations. That's really amazing to me. There is definitely a political um, tribalism in our country. If you if you look at it, it's sort of arranged around trusting experts versus not trusting experts. But it's also around who those experts are. And, and to some degree, I think it's about a distrust or a mistrust of authority and science. And you ask yourself, as just an observer of American culture, why is this? Why are some people so unwilling to examine things like climate change in a serious manner? or say, for example, COVID-19, the fact that it is, in fact, a killer. What actually is going on with part of the country? and Why are we disagreeing with something as fundamental as whether or not this pandemic is actually a killer? Well, if you look back at previous pandemics, there was a pandemic that actually killed more people than this one in 1968, which we call the Hong Kong flu. And and it ran from 68, 69, all the way into 70, 71. The thing you notice, the difference in this country that you see, is at this time there are much more people that are not as accustomed to young death, number one. But also, number two, 1968-69 was the height of the Vietnam War. And surely the media, rightly or wrongly, was much more involved in covering the Vietnam War because for an awful lot of people that would have been the I guess, the story of the moment or the story of their consciousness or whatever. So, in a lot of respects, the media, especially at that time, just sort of you know, covered the, the thing that the people were talking about. And there's also the idea of if it bleeds, it leads. I mean, it's covering a war in, in, in a lot of ways is a whole lot more uh, telegenic than covering a disease. Okay? So that's that's one aspect. But I think another aspect is that we've in this country, in America, we've become very adverse to actually to death. Especially death in young people, or what we call untimely death. You know, that's the concept of dying in your tens and twenties in this country is, is essentially not even a thought that most people have at this point. But, you know, I do think another thing that when it was going on now that isn't going on in 68, 69, 70, 71 is the, basically the politicization of literally everything. The politicization of Basically, everyday American life is just near total. One of the reasons it's near total is because you have, you know, in the past couple of decades, few decades, you've had a, a much more increasing um, us versus them or even like a softening of society to the point where some people even are questioning Things like, do we need a post office? Do we need a a government-provided postal service? And not just the government, mind you, but actual people. And yeah, to a large extent, people are going to parrot the politicians that they think that aligns with their tribe or that they're told aligns with their tribe. But think about how just unthinkable that would be, you know, 20 years ago to actually have people say oh we're going to get rid of the post office that's utterly unthinkable and you think about well you've had you know the proliferation of email and social media and you know bills paid online and that kind of thing but there's something about the glue that having a common post office provides and it's like you have more and more people thinking about the fact that we don't really need that glue anymore, that we can, our communities can go off on their own. And I think some of that is because of the politicization. And I also think that that has a a lot to do with, you know, some of what we think about when we think about this us versus them with the, you know, the regards to the coronavirus. And this, you know, I should say right now, there's also increasingly becoming apparent that there's a certain elephant in the room here when you talk about the coronavirus. And that elephant in the room is race. Now, yes, you can say that race and class, for, for a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, dovetail. But, you know, there are certainly poor whites. There, You know. So, you have to think, the fact that so many black folks have this disease... Or in Georgia, it's like 80% of your patients at one point were African-American. That's a staggering number to think about. And a lot of people, even in 2020, think about, you know, are solidly in one camp or other when it comes to race, which is a fancy way of saying racism still exists in 2020, you know, and that's just that's that's a, a feature For lack of a better way to say it, that's really a feature of the American culture, of the American way of life. That our society, unlike to a certain extent a lot of what we call our peer countries, we have racial components where a lot of our peer countries in the first world don't necessarily have or haven't necessarily had for as long as we have. And that's something I'm going to get into in, in, in another podcast, possibly in this season and possibly not. I don't know. It depends. But here's the, the real truth of the matter. The real truth of the matter is that COVID-19 ends up dovetailing so much with the American political culture and just our culture. Like, it's forcing us to see that that not everybody has the amazing health care and that maybe healthcare shouldn't have been included with a job package only. Maybe we should have had, you know, we haven't had a significant spending in public health in this country in over 40 years. That's really remarkable. It's really remarkable when you think that, you know, the polio vaccine was essentially donated to the American people. And... Hardly anybody is really talking about COVID-19 vaccines being donated to the American people. And so you begin to see this sort of a narrative of not everybody is worthy of a COVID vaccine in this country, which is absolutely amazing to think about, that we're going to be the, the country, the first world country that says, I'm sorry, not everybody's going to get a COVID-19 vaccine that's really remarkable it's really remarkable that we're you know deciding these things and of course you know things could change you know political pressure could be applied or the the reality of the situation could be that far more people have this disease than than previously thought but i don't know the, you're starting to see several states not reporting COVID-19 deaths all of a sudden. And why are they doing that? Think about why they're doing that, people. They're doing that because they see the writing on the wall. They see the writing on the wall that COVID-19 is going to be the new climate change in this country. And that's amazing to think about, that something as basic as a pandemic can become... This new political dividing rod. That's astonishing. How have we allowed COVID-19 to become a political dividing rod? And none of our so-called peer countries have. Do you know why I think that is? Because I think our society, I think our political culture, Republicans and Democrats alike, are now used to creating political divisions to get elected. That's what I really think. I honestly think that both sides of our political spectrum have essentially figured out the way to get elected is to create political division. And think about it, folks. They're the elites. It doesn't matter to them. They're going to get the shot, whether you be Nancy Pelosi or Mike Pence or, you know, whoever, you know, Kevin McCarthy. It doesn't matter to them they're gonna get the shot they're gonna get the best medicine we are not we have to fight for it politically this is a political battle for our survival not our country's survival for our survival and I hear what you're saying there's not a lot of people that died of this well here's a thought I was going through my COVID-19 specials and I was recording and I went across the one where I recorded a couple of weeks ago that something like 40,000 people had died we're rapidly approaching double that number today less than a month later think about that a minute that's amazing that's staggering that's science fiction not science fact so how do we remove the political element of this we build consensus how do we build consensus well we have we the people we the people have to agree upon the facts and the fact is that in the day and age of state actors and whatever engaging in in industrial grade military grade propaganda we have to become discerning okay we have to start thinking that you know the powers that be even in other countries not even in this country can affect us in ways that They couldn't affect our parents and grandparents. Okay, so we have to think about that. We have to become much more critical in our eyes towards the media. All media, not just the media that we care about or whatever. And we should also stop thinking that we should stop thinking about politics as a team sport. We should stop ...thinking about getting one over on the liberals or the conservatives. We should start thinking of ourselves as a people. And I think there's reasons we don't do that. And I think some of these reasons are technological. I think some of these reasons are the fact that there's a political class in this country... ...that has figured out the way to get elected is to convince people that you're on their team... Or first of all, that there is a team. First of all, that the crisis either is or is not happening. And then to shuttle you on one side or other of a crisis. And that's really sort of amazing. It's really kind of amazing how partisan we've become in my lifetime. And, you know, it's it's actually breathtaking to think that i lived to see the 2000 election and i lived to see you know this 2016 election and first of all that the 2000 election was the first election in a while that was as contested as it was but it's it's equally breathtaking to think that you can objective you can disagree on objective reality now like you know you can just say, like, what's the line from 1984? The party is always the right, is the line from 1984. I remember reading that as a kid, and I remember thinking, well, God, that's. I'm sure glad I live in America. I'm sure glad the party isn't always right in America. I mean. You know, we need to think critically as adults and not necessarily from a partisan lens because the partisan lens was invented by an elite that wants to get them in power. And that's both on the Democrat side and the Republican side. And we need to think about that seriously. We need to think seriously that To a certain extent, both sides, to differing degrees, are essentially only about keeping themselves in power. On the Republican side, I blame this on their intense desire to, you know, take American money and give it to the billionaires based on the Laffer curve. Or trickle-down economics. I also blame it on, you know, Citizens United. I blame this on the knee-jerk reaction to go to these elective wars of choice to the point where you essentially start to see, if you're an American citizen, you, you essentially begin to see an elective war of choice as though it were like a jobs program. And on the Democrat side, my my critique is a lot more um, nuanced. The Democrats in this country, for since about at least FDR, were supposed to be the party of the working class. And it's becoming increasingly apparent to me that, for lack of a better term, or for lack of a better way to put it, the Democrat Party is not the, the party of the working class anymore. And I think it should be. I think that's the great failure of the American political thing, is that you don't really have anymore a party of the American working family. You, the Republicans, to, to a certain degree at least... You know, sing the song, or I guess, or hit the notes of the the common everyday blue collar worker, but they don't really help the common everyday blue collar worker. You know, they help the the rich people, they help the haves, they help the 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 country club set, if not even beyond the country club set. But the Democrats don't really. I mean. We're supposed to vote Democrat because, you know, it makes us feel good to help these people or to to be on the side of the people that, so to say, that, you know, you're not actively oppressing these people. Well, okay, fine, but I don't really, I mean, if you look at the Green New Deal, I don't actually think the Green New Deal is going to help average Americans because I don't think average Americans... I think there's a whole lot of average Americans that live places that would be hurt by the Green New Deal, for example. And, you know, and the fact that they refuse to see that, the fact that a lot of people voted for Trump because he was an outsider, because they, an outsider is essentially a coda for somebody not of the establishment, because I think there are a lot of people that see the establishment as essentially the same party. So the establishment Republicans and the establishment Democrats as the same party. I I all the time have to remind myself that I'm far more knowledgeable about American political theory than most people. And I think for those of you who listen to this who are knowledgeable about American political theory, I think it would... It would do well, you would do well to try and take, you know, take all that out of your mind and look at, you know, pocketbook issues and look at what, you know, the media diet on the right seems to say about the American, you know, about the Democratic Party. And remember that there are a lot of Republicans out there and a lot of very conservative people that honestly believe that's what the Democrat party believes is that abortion should be on demand and that all that kind of stuff and that doesn't really strike me as a pocketbook issue on the left not the left but for kind of your average american person that doesn't really strike me and i know that's politically uncomfortable to say but it just gets to the point that I don't think we really have a party of the working class anymore. And I think that's hurting us as a country. And I think the only real way to get back to that and I don't care really if it's the the Democrat or the Republican Party. Honestly. But the only way to get back to that really is to get rid of Citizens United. And I think, I don't know how to do that, because, I mean, I think that would take a constitutional amendment. And the Constitution would be paid for by the Koch brothers, or the living Koch brother, I should say. And I don't know that I want him in charge of that. You know, so, I, I mean, I, effectively, I don't know what to do. But, and I think the other thing, the more disturbing thing that that I've noticed within the Trump presidency, but certainly outside of it, when you think about Bush and Katrina, or even beyond that, is Americans everywhere are starting to decide where America is and who America is, and where America is not and who America is not. And remember that we're not a country, and I do want to talk about this on a later podcast, that we're not a country with a common... um founding myth that comes from a post-Roman situation as so many of the feeder countries to America traditionally were. So our founding myth comes essentially from a time of literacy which I think is a problem because you can't fudge it as much and you can't you know you can go back and look at the receipts as you might say today in in modern parlance you can go back and you can see how the country was founded because they wrote it down, the founders actually wrote it down in a language you can understand and believe it or not I genuinely believe that's a real problem that you can't fudge how the country was founded that you have to say that our country was founded by slaveholders you know you have to say that to people And there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast and that are going to, you know, exist in the world and that, whatever, that hear the phrase, our country was founded by slaveholders, and they get understandably very, very, very uncomfortable with that. Unlike, say, with the French, where you can essentially just sort of come up with this popular, agreed-upon myth of how France was founded. And you don't have to get into the stickier stuff. Partly because we're only just now discovering the sticky stuff. And partly because it's so drained from the politics of the day that nobody really cares anymore. Anyway, so that's a real problem is that I see that, that unfortunately our current debate about who an American is and who American is not, is dovetailing with the COVID-19 problem. And I think that's a serious dilemma. Maybe I'm overblowing it, maybe, but, you know, I don't know. I think another issue that we need to come into to talk about is the idea of, that America has very loose cultural rules. In other words that social scientists like to say that America is a very loose culture. We're a nation of lawbreakers. We were founded by breaking the law. We were essentially ran away from British taxes. I mean a lot of a lot of our ancestors actually had no desire to interface with any government at all, which is why they kept leaving the city to start with. So, you know, America doesn't really cotton to, to laws and rules very much. At least that's part of our myth. Now, here's another thought. Another thought I've got is that, you know, we like to be the disobedient child, okay? We're not used to this could kill us, that could kill us. And, you know, it's what, between a 3% 6 chance of It's between a 3% and a 6% chance of death, dying of the coronavirus. So, yeah, a lot of people see that and they think, oh, I'll take those odds. But what they're not seeing is the significant chance of being hospitalized. That's what they're not seeing, is the very, very significant chance of being hospitalized. Because in America, I really think, it's like you, you gain in esteem of your Americans by, by pretending to be the rebellious child. Whether or not you're a rebellious child or not, you gain in the esteem in the act of rebellion. And I also think that there used to be, in fact, I know, there used to be a, a long, proud heritage of simply you know, going it on your own and there'd be this disease that would crop up and, oh, if you died from it, you died from it and it was your time to go. And, you know, always with the wheels of progress, specifically with a certain group. There is a certain group in this country that has really bought in to the fact that they founded this country and that's important to them and they've really, really bought in to the fact that it is the commerce that is the engine and not the government. And this commerce grinding to a halt is really to them, you know, troubling to a huge degree. And it ought to be troubling to a lot of people, and I think it is, to basically everybody, to come out of this and think, what is our society going to look like? And I think and I've said this before, but I think there's also this other piece that, you know, I was a younger adult during the Great Recession that occurred and we like to think, occurred in 2008. So, you know, but there's this, these older people, they didn't really come of age in a time of, of you know, this technology where they could live essentially apart from the wider society. I think that's a lot of it, and I think that that really troubles a lot of people, or at least we're told it troubles a lot of people. I wonder how much of this is just acting, this tribal acting. and I'm, I, that's another thing is it's performance art for your tribe. And that's something that I really think we need to talk about is is how many of these people posting these memes to tell people that masks aren't valuable or that that we need to go out in the world? How many of them are going out? When you look at the statistics that 80% of Republicans think eating out is fine. Okay. Go. Go eat out. Oh, what? You're not? You're not eating out? Okay. See, a lot of this is just trash talking. And it's unseemly and it's dangerous because here's the other thing the people working at these restaurants working in the grocery store working in the hair salons barbershops and all the other quote unquote essential businesses are in much more danger than you are sitting at home most of the time unless you're going through a very abusive relationship or whatever and that is something to be talked about is that there's a pretty significant chance that some of these people, these low-wage people, are going to end up in the hospital the longer this goes on, and that's something to think about. You know, and I, I think that there's some people that are being forced into public displays of empathy, and maybe they just don't feel comfortable displaying public displays of empathy, because maybe, perhaps... You know, there's no value in that culturally for certain people. And maybe that's a big change that some people don't want to have to deal with because in America we're taught to mind your own business and to to go your own way. Well, public displays of empathy by design necessitate that you're not going your own way without taking into account other people. And... That's like the you look at the mask as tyranny movement, right? Well, that dovetails into the Spanish flu. But then again, there's two kinds of masks. There's the mask that protect you from the world and the masks that protect the world from you. And something that I think you know you have to think about that. I mean, which masks you wear, says a lot about what you think about this, I think, to a certain extent. Of course, it could just be, like, what mask was available at the time. But, you know, I really do think there's a lot of people that suddenly have to to display empathy publicly, or at least they're pressured into displaying empathy publicly in a way that maybe they never had to think about before. And maybe that makes certain people uncomfortable. I don't know, but I think we're going to grow as a culture one way or the other. And I think that's the legacy of this pandemic, the coronavirus, is that we're going to be forced to grow as a culture, whether we want to grow or not. Um. Okay, so thank you for listening to the History Voyager this is, a, again, I, wanna, I want you to situate this in a, in a COVID-19 uh, type of vein. I'll get back to the Spanish flu probably eventually. We're, we're currently in the spring in the Spanish flu. Um, I wanted to talk now also about um, just the reception the reception of the Spanish flu podcast has been amazing um thank you so much um and i'll talk to you later bye